This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Matt Borowicki, CFO of Bioformis, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 654. And then a few years ago, uh, I had a chance to take uh, Snapchat public. I was their first CFO. Uh, I joined that company uh, late summer of 2015. Uh, that company really was a greenfield situation financially. We just had a couple of people. Uh, we were pre-revenue. Uh, we had no general ledger. We had never created an income statement, never created a balance sheet, never created a cash flow statement. And 18 months later, we had a $20 billion IPO. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Drew Valero, CFO of Allied Universal. Finance leader Drew Valero built his finance career inside large enterprises such as PepsiCo and toy maker Mattel Inc. The seasoned corporate executive was known to load up on strat planning assignments and take ownership of difficult initiatives. Still, when he landed in the CFO office at Snapchat, heads turned. The dark horse candidate from Toyland eclipsed the hopes of many a tech CFO and helped Snap to realize its IPO ambitions. Fast forward to 2018, and Valero is stepping into the CFO office of the $8 billion in revenue privately held Allied Universal, a company IPO veteran Valero may someday help take public. What's the primary constraint on Allied's future growth? Human capital. Like so many other challenges Valero has helped to remedy during his finance career, Allied CFO is making the optimization of the company's employee funnel an important priority. We speak to Drew Valero after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve. Your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. We're speaking to Drew Valero, CFO of Allied Universal. Drew, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Hey, Drew, we always begin with this one question where we ask our guests to look back for us and share with us some of those experiences they feel really prepared them for a finance leadership role. What is it that sticks in your mind when I, I pose that question to you? Uh, no, great, great question. Um, you know, I, uh, I really think about three formative things that uh, really shaped who I am today from a financial leadership perspective. I go way back, honestly, back to when I was a kid. And uh, I ran my own chocolate chip cookie business uh, when I was 12 and uh, was really involved in all aspects of the business. Um, we had a compelling price point. We baked homemade chocolate chip cookies and sold them for a dime for one. 50 cents for a half dozen and a dollar for a dozen. We knocked door to door and uh, sold the cookies. Who could turn down a cute kid with uh, cookies uh, price to move? And so learned all about being an entrepreneur, being creative, uh, being you know energetic. You had to sell because you had to knock on people's doors and convince them that that's uh, the product that they wanted. It was a really you know tremendous experience. Um, is very successful business and really, uh, really learned a lot, you know, at a young age about, you know, keeping your own finances. 
also learned a lot about inventory. Uh, it was funny in the early in the early moments of the business, uh, my friend's mother bankrolled the business and she bought uh, all of the cookie mix, et cetera, for us. And it's easy to show profitability when you have no cost of goods. But uh, that after the first couple of weeks, she said enough is enough. And as the business was taking off, she said, you guys got to buy it yourself. And uh, you only get to go to the store once a week. So I remember making our first uh, chocolate chip cookie purchase. We had to find the cheapest retailer around, which was uh, important to find the right uh, suppliers. But uh, the other piece that uh, was interesting was, you know, buying all that inventory. I had to take all the profits in the business for the first three weeks. And I had to take a loan from my mother for, I think I borrowed like $20 on top of that to buy the cookie mix for the week. And I remember sitting there as a kid thinking to myself, I just busted my butt for three weeks. I have zero to show for it other than I owe my mother another $20. And so I thought to myself, you know, this inventory thing, it sucks. And, uh, and I got to really look hard at inventory going forward. And I think that's a good skill set that every financial person should really take is look at your inventory and say to yourself, okay, that's my cash tied up there. How do we really minimize what we've got there to make sure that, uh, that we make sure the cash flow of the operation works? But I remember thinking to myself after three weeks being fairly distraught that I had worked hard and I actually had less money than when I started. So, but overall it was a great experience. We grossed a couple of thousand dollars and, and when you're 12 years old, that's a, that's a wonderful experience. Um, secondly, I worked for PepsiCo when I graduated from uh, business school. You know, it was probably uh, one of the two academy companies in the country at that time. Uh, that and GE were probably the two places to really cut your teeth as a financial person. Um, they're terrific. I mean, it was really a company that's extraordinarily well run. I had 10 different jobs in my 11 years there. I worked in finance. I worked in strategy. Uh, I worked in marketing. I worked in real estate. Uh, I worked in M&A. Uh, it's really just a terrific company. And they do a great job of, you know, not just building financial people, but business people. I always thought of myself as not a financial guy, but a business person with financial acumen. And so that was really a great experience. They teach you about what's important, people, it's a results-oriented culture, certainly a focus on cash, but uh, overall it was a great place to really be groomed. So I, I think that shaped a lot of who I am today. And then a few years ago, my third point would be I had a chance to take uh, Snapchat public. I was their first CFO. Uh, I joined that company uh, late summer of 2015. Uh, that company really was a greenfield situation financially. We just had a couple of people. Uh, we were pre-revenue. Uh, we had no general ledger. We had never created an income statement, never created a balance sheet, never created a cash flow statement. And 18 months later, we had a $20 billion IPO. So it was really a situation where I got a chance to build a team from, you know, a handful of folks when I first showed up to we had nearly 100 financial people when we went public. So I got a chance to hire all those folks. And then a lot of CFOs kind of moved the instrumentation on these big companies. I had a chance to build that instrumentation. We decided all the accounting policies, had a chance to work through a lot of the workflows, got a chance to design or work with sort of the systems that we wanted to use from a general ledger perspective, from a close the books perspective, et cetera. So all, all of those decisions were fun to do. Uh, and you know, you get that opportunity when it's a greenfield situation like that. So I, I would say all three of those were very rich experiences and shape a lot of who I am today. Wow, what what a wonderful few chapters. Uh, you have certainly uh, whetted our appetite. And I have to, uh, the one I, I, I quickly wanna zero in on, and I, I don't think I'm alone here. I imagine our listeners are wondering as well. Uh, from these large enterprise environments, you move into uh, the, the Snapchat uh, chapter. Um, and again, you were uh, sort of in these large financial functions uh, up to that point. And that's that's quite a uh, segue. Were you looking to open a new chapter? Were you interested in high growth companies? Were you recruited? How did that How did that happen? Yeah, it was a, it was a fairly extraordinary thing. Uh, I was looking for a new chapter. I had been at Mattel for 15 years, so it was time to do something new. Um, you know, look, I, I really will always appreciate the chance Snapchat took on me as being a CFO. Uh, I think we had a lot of success taking that company public. Um, so to your point, you know, I had never been in technology before. And to your point, I'd never been a CFO before. Um, and uh, so all of those things kind of, and I'd never taken a company public before. So all of those things at the, on the surface 
sort of the fit was a little bit, you know, odd when they came and contacted me, but that's not what the company needed. Like the company knew it wanted to go public quickly. And what, what, uh, what Snapchat was looking for was really somebody who could build financial processes. And they really liked the classic training I had at PepsiCo. And as I mentioned, we really had a handful of people when I first joined the company. And so they really wanted to build a world-class team. And so they had done a lot of research on me and my background and, and, and knew that sort of what I did at Mattel and a lot of what I did at Pepsi was, you know, run a strap planning organization where we groomed talent for the rest of the organization. Same thing at Mattel as well. And a lot of the people that worked for me in strap planning at Mattel ended up becoming general managers of businesses or countries, CFOs and other parts of the business on kind of at the region level. And so they, they knew that I had a, you know, had experience really building world-class teams. And so they felt like, you know, I could learn technology. They felt like the road to an IPO is also learnable, but the skill sets that, that I brought were helpful. They also um, were looking for someone that really could hit the ground running in a lot of ways from a financial perspective, they were on a tight time frame to go public. And so, you know, having been around kind of traditional organizations for 25 years at that point between Mattel and Pepsi, they liked that experience. And so that was where the match really made sense. And at Mattel, you also had uh, the investor relations world. Do you think that was a contributor uh, as far as uh, your bona fides as you land at Snapchat? It, it, it was. You're right that I did have investor relations at, at Mattel, and, and I felt like we made a lot of progress there. I thought we did some really good things. You know, we were fortunate when I was at Snapchat, we had a fellow named Imran Khan, who was a very well-known and decorated investment banker. He was our COO at, um, at Snap. And so he and I were sort of a one-two punch with Wall Street, but he, he paid, played a very lead role, particularly with the IPO. He uh, had taken Alibaba public once upon a time, so sort of knew the ropes very well, knew the IPO process very well. And you know, whenever we walked into a room, whether it was the roadshow or whatever, there were seven or eight people that knew him. He had started as an equity analyst, so he had written a lot of opinions in the tech business. And then, as I mentioned, he was the banker who took Alibaba public. So he was, a, you know, really uh, probably the, the face of the organization to Wall Street, but certainly I played a role as well. And just uh, ordinarily, I might ask this during the mentoring round, but did you relocate when you joined Snapchat? I mean, was there, a, you know, I, I, were you always in California or what was... Uh... Yeah. Geography. So, so I've been in Orange County for 30 years. Snap is up in Venice and uh, and Santa Monica. To your point, you know, that's for those that know L.A. geography, it's about 70 miles and it's 70 tough miles. And it was, you know, that was an 18 month, very, um, you know, difficult slog from a uh, from a workload perspective, just trying to take the company public. And so I, I did get an apartment up in Los Angeles and I was there Sunday through uh, Friday just, you know, getting the things done that we had to get done, just getting ready for an IPO. So it was a fairly consumptive process. So for that time, uh, I did work up in Los Angeles, but uh, over time, I was able to gravitate more to my home here in Orange County. I hope, uh, Drew, you'll indulge us here because uh, before I ask you about Allied Universal again, uh, just such an interesting chapter. Uh, there are many finance leaders, uh, senior finance people who reside in very large enterprise environments who probably uh, fantasize about just what you uh, accomplished here, just what you did, taking a fast growth firm public. I just want to just, are, are there any additional takeaways that you can share with us here, insights as to that part of your journey? I just think, again, there's just, it's, it's something many would like to do, but only a few do, and you did it. So, uh, anything come to mind for us? Sure. I mean, look, for the, the road to, to becoming a public company is, you know, paved with a lot of professionals that have done it before that can help you. Um, so I think in that way, you know, Snap was right. That, that That's a learnable skill and it's become a cottage industry and there are a lot of professionals that do it. Um, obviously, you know, as you build your teams, now what you need to be conscious of is, you know, you're going to be a public company with public reporting experiences. So you got to make sure you nail your forecasting and your ability to close the books quickly. Surround yourself with a handful of really talented people, particularly on the control side, the IR side, the treasury side. Those are all important positions that as a private company probably don't come to the forefront as much as they do as a public company. 
I thought we hired very well at Snapchat. I thought we had a terrific team. They really helped us move forward. Um, I think we did a good job on the roadshow of really trying to find the long-term investors that understood Snap's story. I think it's easy to find folks that, that kind of want to jump into the story and maybe make a quick buck. But I think on the roadshow itself, really sort of focus as much as you can on finding long-term holders. And Snap also didn't play the IPO for the last dollar. I think what we were thinking about was what's a reasonable value to go public at. Can you grab some more money at the IPO? You probably can. I think Snap did a very good job of coming out of the gates. We priced our offering at 17. It jumped um, pretty strong uh, that first day on the open. So I think overall, you know, we thought about the IPO as just one day in our journey. It was a chance to get capitalization. It was a chance to monetize some of the employees. And I think those are great, but I think the company kept it in perspective that it wasn't an end, but it was a means and it was a way to access capital to the public markets. I don't think we played the IPO for the last dollar on the, on the, uh, on the launch. And I think we tried to find the right shareholders to tell the story to so that they would hold the right stock. All right. Well, uh, from Mattel to Snapchat to Allied Universal, and of course, we now want to talk to you about Allied, and it's uh, your career is just full of surprises, and uh, it seems uh, it's not industry uh, specific by any stretch. So, tell us about Allied Universal and this this latest chapter that you opened. What is this company all about? Of course, it's a brand many of us do know, but share with us. Uh, tell us about Allied. Yeah, no, look, Allied's a terrific company. It's it's not always on people's radar screen. I'm glad you know it, but but it's a private company, but it's you know it's not a household consumer name and it's more of an everyday space. And so sometimes the everyday spaces don't crack the headlines, but it's a good solid company. We're the domestic leader in private security. We have about a 30% share of the marketplace and we have annualized sales of well over $8 billion. Um, overall, we've been a standout performer in the marketplace in the seven quarters that, uh, that I've been here. We've had seven consecutive quarters of double-digit sales gains and seven consecutive quarters of double-digit uh, profit gains, and we've seen increasing margins each quarter as well. So a lot of momentum in the business. I think what you know sort of is driving that success, I think there's a handful of things that make it different here. I think um, we're a founder-led company, and Snap was a founder-led company too, and uh, you know, Steve Jones is our CEO here. There's a difference if you've worked in a founder-led company. The company's take on the personality of the founder. Steve is very passionate about what he does, very into customer service. Uh, he drives hard, um, you know, very straightforward guy. His word is his word. Um, so, but, but, but really, Steve is a big straw that stirs Allied Universal, I think, makes a difference against some of the people we compete against. Um, scale, I would say, is another big thing for Allied Universal. At over $8 billion, all domestic, basically. You know, scale matters in our business, right? Scale matters because customers have needs, and, and those needs can change. And customers may need 200 guards tomorrow afternoon because of an event or something. Your ability to, to, to get resources to them quickly to flex with their business needs matters a lot. And so the fact that we have scale in the guarding business and we're able to sort of work with customers, you know, to bring them additional resources, a lot of customers, especially big customers will have multiple locations. So we do business in all 50 states, obviously, you know, when you do business with like an Amazon or a Facebook or a Bank of America, they have branches all over the country. They have offices all over the country. You need national scale. And so scale matters in our business. Um, similar to Snap, Allied is about managing hyper growth. Um, and so this business was less than a billion dollars at the beginning of the decade and, and now is over eight billion, as I mentioned. So you're talking about a business that's done nearly 60 acquisitions at this point. So it's a very competent acquirer, generate a lot of value from an acquisition perspective. They integrate business as well. But similar to Snap, the challenge at Snap was how do you manage a hyper growth business? That's the same challenge here we have at Allied Universal. It's a little different in the sense that it's more, you know, kind of through acquisition, but uh, but the challenges are real and the demands are real in the organization. And I'd say Snap, or I'd say uh, Allied Universal is a little bit different also. We're a purpose-driven company. We have a very good value set. They emanate from the founder. But I think if you went to our customers, you'd say they're very, you know, Allied Universal, very trustworthy, very reliable. You know, they're, they're nimble, 
just because they're big doesn't mean they don't move fast. They move very fast here. We try to be very responsive to the customers. So that's sort of the secret sauce here. We're founder led. We've got scale. We manage hyper growth. And I think we're a value driven company, um, purpose driven company. So overall, I think those are sort of the keys to success here. Here again, I'm tempted to draw a contrast with your last chapter at Snapchat. Uh, as you have described it, it was a greenfield uh, company. You really played a role in establishing the processes, adopting the technologies that would give you the visibility. I'm wondering if you land here and whether your visibility is dynamic, uh, whether you have lines of sight into the data like you uh, had architected uh, at Snapchat. Uh, can you give us a sense of your, your lines of sight uh, and uh, the types of things you're measuring? Yeah. So, look, it's an operating company here at uh, Allied Universal. Um, so we've got 235,000 employees. We've got 13,000 customers. We have a lot of data and we have a lot of tools that help us um, manage that data. That would be my high level take um, and our ability to we have a business intelligence system that has capabilities to share that as low as the local account or the local branch. And so we're able to provide transparency on the decision making uh, at the field level. So a field operator can see the profitability of their account. They can see the impact of their pay rates that they decide to pay for employees. They can see the impact of the, the bill rates they go to the customers with. So we have individual P&Ls that really drive accountability at, at the field level. I think at a much higher level, you know, wh where am I focused or what are we trying to do here? I think there are three important dynamics that, that I've been focused on since I've been here. You know, they're, they're a little bit, you know, they're sort of muscles that the company's trying to build. I mean, your question focused a little bit on sort of, you know, do we have visibility to the data? The short answer there is yes. I'd say more the trends or the, the, the muscle that I've been focused on first and foremost is the cultural shift of this company from being a growth oriented company to better balancing growth and profitability, right? And so what I call that is really the need to carry water on both shoulders. You know, we have lots of examples of people that can grow sales and profits simultaneously. They're not mutually exclusive. It was something we learned in PepsiCo, talked about all the time. But, you know, back to sort of the results that we've had here. I mean, we've been able to grow the sales and the profits here, double digits each of the last seven quarters um, because of, I think, a better focus on not just M&A and account growth and customer service, but also focusing a lot more on margins and, and how uh, we get cash out of our business, which gets to the second point, which is the second muscle we tried to build really is around cash. And so historically, this is a company that's really focused on adjusted EBITDA. Adjusted EBITDA is similar to cash, but there, there's cash is broader than that. So look, at the end of the day, as a financial person, I've always believed that P&Ls are interesting. Balance sheets are more interesting, but cash is what really matters, what really matters. And, and sometimes you can get caught in the trap where you're managing EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA or perform adjusted EBITDA. And generally those are good proxies, but, but things that that misses and cash, you know, is cash flow, you know, sort of picks up is, is one is, you know, like receivables and payables, right? Receivables and payables are something that aren't a part of pro forma adjusted EBITDA, but they're central to the operations of the company. So we spent a lot of time really with receivables and payables. On the acquisition side, historically, we've been a company that has bought companies based on multiples. We're now bringing the discipline of you know, cash flow. And so we're looking at IRRs and NPVs around a lot of our deals. We've always thought about those, but I think we're bringing it more in the forefront. We're looking at the cash flow of an acquisition, not just the marketplace multiple that you're paying. I think those are a couple of simple examples. But, but at the end of the day, one of the disciplines that we've been focused on is a monthly cash forecast. It runs our business. And so those are muscles that we've built over the last couple of years to really have a dynamic cash forecast here so that we have visibility at all times. So I'd say that's a second trend we've been working on. The third one is kind of picking up on the field. It's a hugely execution-based or organization. It's a very decentralized model. The local operators decide the pricing, the bill rates, who gets hired. 
all that's done at the field level. And so what we really spent some time on here is trying to develop an incentive system um, that makes a lot of sense, that's visible to the operator um, and performance driven. Historically, the incentive system here has been probably more relationship driven without clear metrics at times. I think we're working hard to give the field team visibility real time so they can see where they stand. And we're trying to align the right, you know, right behaviors through incentives. So a couple of simple examples are today now operators have uh, a bonus metric based on gross margin. They have a bonus metric based on their accounts receivable. Historically, that's not what uh, we've incented. So those are the types of ways that finance has tried to make a difference. But overall, we're trying to build sort of that cultural shift of growth and profitability, that cultural shift to you know, cash flow versus adjusted EBITDA, and that sort of field incentive of you know, really performance-driven visibility that the local operator can see where they stand and see how they're rewarded for their behaviors. Well, again, those incentives, gross margin, as well as accounts receivable, accounts receivable uh, in this environment is something many uh, finance leaders tell us they're spending more of their time paying attention to these days and talking to their teams about. Um, is that, I would imagine that's the case here. Again, uh, it's an obvious concern uh, for any business, but uh, can, you, can you share some thoughts on how accounts receivable, whether you've had more frequent meetings uh, with the field to, to help them understand better that we've got to track this more closely? Yeah, look, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a journey that we're on with accounts receivable. I think we're fortunate that the CEO, our, our CEO in general is very financially sound. And, you know, he built the company from the ground up. Like he was one of, you know, he's made all the decisions. So he realizes sort of the importance in cash. So I get CEO validation every staff meeting by saying, hey, look, this is important. And we go to our field operators when they give their updates and each of them gives their updates on on um, on on AR. So it, it it starts with sort of that executive endorsement. It's hard as a CFO without the CEO for certain things like that, without that endorsement. But but Steve's very good on that. Um, I think most of what we're doing today is really just by sheer will. Um, we're working sort of in the medium term on people, process and systems. We probably need a few more collectors from a process perspective. There are a couple of things that we're, we're focused on. Uh, and from a system perspective, there are a couple of uh, new systems that we're thinking about that might help us from a, you know, from a cash collection standpoint. But those are probably medium term fixes where we've really focused in the near term is really on the incentive system, which we talked about and incenting folks so that there's you know, the behavior to collect money is throughout the organization, not just at the top levels of leadership. And I think there's just a constant focus on doing that. There's some near-term programs that we have in place to collect old receivables. So we've rolled out over the last six months, some additional incentive programs to collect past due, you know, three months, nine months, et cetera. So putting even additional focus on it, but really it's been those short-term behaviors that we've been trying to get attention to. But I think over the medium term, we're working on a much more strategic plan. Lately, more and more CFOs are telling us their people, the company's workforce, uh, is the company's most valuable asset. So we've begun to ask, and I'll point out, I think you mentioned Allied today has 235,000 employees. Uh, we've been gotten asking uh, our guests, how are you measuring that out, uh, that asset? Do your lines of sight as the CFO extend into that investment? Um, do you need to measure it differently? Are you, are you adopting a different mindset maybe within the company to, to better incent, uh, to curtail turnover, whatever it might be? Um, can you reflect a little bit about the workforce and that investment? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I can speak to the workforce at large, and then we can speak a little bit to what we do in finance. Um, and so uh, at the workforce at large, completely agree with you, uh, have always believed that uh, people are central to the value creation of a company, right? So you may have a brand, um, and our brand means something certainly in our space, but I think a lot of the purchases in this company or for this, you know, in this category in private security really are, are personality driven or relationship driven. And so people matter a lot in this business. They matter a lot. Your pricing matters too. 
your track record and safety matters, but, but the people matter a lot. And so I think Steve spends a lot of time uh, with, with people. I spend a lot of time with people. I think certainly the turnover metric here is something that we watch very, very closely. Uh, I would say that, you know, we hire 3000 people a week, right? So we have, you know, so, so just, even to back up a step, I mean, we see a million resumes a year here at Allied University, right? So I think there's 150 million or so people employed in this country. So you're talking about, you know, a meaningful number of resumes that this company sees. So our ability to hire the right people is really important, like really, really important. And how do you do it at, at scale is, is really our challenge. We see a million resumes. We're hiring 150,000 people a year. So, so our ability to do that correctly or to do that right really makes sense. And so I think our strategy team uh, has really adopted a couple of new tools that really helped us do that through the field. We now have really an artificial intelligence uh, vehicle that we're testing that really will help us identify sort of what are the key metrics or what are the key personalities or key answers that uh, applicants can give us that really will fit well with our culture, as well as indicate that those might be successful employees. I think we're using sort of that artificial intelligence. Um, we're also using an automated workflow to really help us get through some of our staffing bottlenecks. Our challenge here today is we may get a resume, but we may not be able to call you for six to eight weeks. And so managing that workflow a lot better is very important to us and something that we spend a lot of time doing. So I could go on and on and on about some of the things that we're doing, but turnover is super important to us. Uh, we manage that closely, but really we spend a lot of time about the employment funnel. You know, how do we find, you know, 150,000 of the best employees? No question. That's an impressive number. And if you visit, Allied Universal's homepage, there's a hiring calendar that uh, shows hiring activity all over the country. And usually these are, I think, uh, security uh, professionals that you're hiring. It might not be clear to some of us why, uh, through a pandemic, you, you are uh, still making these types of hires. It hasn't impacted that, or has it? You know, it's probably a broader question. Um, you know, we're hiring based on customer needs, right? So, so customers... Um, have positions that they would like us to fill. We have contracts with customers. Uh, we typically, you know, over the last couple of years have had thousands of positions that we haven't been able to fill. Um, so because the labor market's been tight, right? There's a lot of competition in the labor market. Um, customers continue to need services. And some, to your point, have used less during the pandemic. So maybe like the retail channel might be using less services, Maybe some of the local office buildings that we guard use less services, but a lot of customers have asked for more hours. So state governments have wanted more hours. Um, hospitals have wanted more hours. There's a, you know, it sort of ebbs and flows by channel a little bit. So, but, but, but overall, you know, the company has been a very active hire during the, uh, the pandemic. I mean, obviously, you know, as we sort of have managed, our company here for, through the pandemic. I mean, we've really kind of focused on on three important pieces of our company. I mean, first and foremost, we focus on our employees, right? And so we really, during the, the pandemic, we've instructed all of our employees, you know, to follow the CDC and, and WHO guidelines, social distancing, very, very important. I think overall, you know, the company's done a good job. We've got 800 numbers. We have daily communication with our employees. We really work hard to assist and educate them. Um, the safety guidelines have kind of been a moving target at times. And so we've done a good job of really trying to transmit that to the employees. And then obviously we've tried to protect our employees during the pandemic as much as we can with the personal protective equipment. We give latex gloves, masks, hand sanitizers, et cetera. We've given over 650,000 cloth masks during that time. But uh, we've also you know, been very active with virtual events, hiring people. So um, a lot of kind of drive through hiring events to keep the social distancing. But but overall, the, the, the demand for security services remains pretty strong. And uh, we still have a significant number of open posts. And we've been trying to uh, trying to fill those, trying to be with the customers. 
Um, from a financial perspective, obviously, during the pandemic, we've been focused on really the liquidity of the company. I can give you more on that. But um, those are really the things that uh, we've been focused on on the, on the pandemic is, first and foremost, the employees and how we keep them safe. The customers, we've got 13,000 customers. 13,000 customers have 13,000 different ways that they've attacked this situation. Different people have done it different ways, and we try to be with them every step. And then from a liquidity perspective on the financial side, there's a couple of things that we've been trying to do to uh, to make sure that uh, the company can uh, continue to, to do well. You know, frame of magnitude, our payroll here is $100 million a week. And so we got to make sure that, uh, that, you know, we have the ability to continue to to, to pay the people who are working hard through the situation. Okay, so some nice detail there. Thank you very much. We're, we're going to uh, jump to our finance strategic moment question where we ask the guests to uh, once more look back and just pluck out one moment in time where they recall having a sort of a strategic aha moment uh, because of their lines of sight. What comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, it's a good, um, it's a good question. I, you know, you, you always, part of what we're trying to do here in finance and any place I've worked in finance is really to be a business partner and, and business partners don't just announce the results, but try to work with people to, to shape the results. And, you know, when you say that a couple of things come to mind, maybe two stories that, that I think may be relevant for folks. Um, you know, we did uh, a great acquisition when I was at Mattel, um, Called, we bought a, or we worked with a joint venture with a company called Seenit. I don't know if you know that game, but Seenit was basically a very small company that we found at a trade show. And, you know, what was special about Seenit was, uh, so Seenit was Trivial Pursuit with video clips. So instead of, you know, uh, it was a game that you bought, but instead of, you know, asking you a question, you know, what's the capital of Norway? Um, it was more content based. So you would have like a Disney scene it, or you'd have a, you know, Warner brothers scene it or whatever. And the questions were asked by watching a clip from a DVD, which is, you know, infinitely more powerful. But what scene had done as the company was that they had a capabilities play where they had figured out sort of the intricate back office of the studios on a rev share deal and they had worked through the music licenses as well. And for folks that know sort of how content is done and how music is done in these movies and these TV shows, the rights are owned by just a series of people that, that really is very, very complicated. And so to make a, a game around, you know, a couple hundred clips from different movies, et cetera, is extraordinarily difficult because the directors have rights and the actors have rights and the studios have rights and the agents have rights. But what CNN had done was they had carved a path where they had gotten a couple of studios to play. And so that this acquisition was all about the capabilities of that married with the distribution of Mattel. And so this ended up being a home run deal and seen it for a couple of years was the best selling game in the world. And, and the, sort of the learning on the financial side for me was a look back to sort of sales growth and margin growth. Like Inorganic growth through M&A is important. And as a financial person, I think you've got to have a point of view on M&A. And I think it's important. And I think the difference was historically, as I've you know, sort of been in the M&A business, I've been buying you know, sort of brands and end products. This was about capabilities. And so this was sort of an interesting play and sort of changed my perspective on M&A a little bit. Certainly, you want to buy great brands that make sense. But the idea of buying capabilities was really a home run here. And, uh, and a big win. So that was sort of a, a place where we found this one and, uh, and, and it made a lot of sense and, and was a great home run for the company. The, the other one was um, capital allocation. You know, it, historically, I had sort of been a person that believed in share repurchases and dividends. I think at times they both can make sense. I think we were asked by the board to really study it in a lot of detail. And I think the more that you study, the more you realize how powerful dividends are. And uh, we really changed our capital allocation strategy toward dividends at uh, one of the companies that I worked at, drove huge value to the organization. I mean, I think for those of you that have looked at it closely, and I do invite financial folks to look at it closely, uh, I think what you'll find is the dividends just for a number of reasons. They're a signaling model. They give cash back to the investors. They really are a much, much more accretive way than dividend or than share repurchases to, to drive 
sort of your share price and to get cash back in the hands of your shareholders. But I think we really shaped our capital deployment strategy. I think we changed it meaningfully at one of the companies that I worked at. And uh, we saw immediate returns in our PE multiple, share price appreciation, et cetera. Uh, and I think we created a ton of value by doing that. When we return, CFO Drew Valero enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Drew, we always begin the mentoring round with this question. If you could go back in time to that first quarter, that first week when the CFO responsibilities landed on your shoulders, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Yeah, you know, it, uh, it's, um, it's been a journey and, and, and I've done some stuff uh, well and some stuff less well. But um, look, I think I've been lucky to work with a lot of good leaders. And, and if I could, you know, go back to young me or young somebody and say, hey, look, think about this or that. I think, you know, as I, as I, um, you know, as I ran my career or I thought about my career, I was definitely the guy who probably outworked most people and, um, you know, very much stayed up very late doing lots of spreadsheets to get the answer down to the you know, third decimal. And my advice to somebody would be, I think people remember less what you tell them and more about how you made them feel or what, you know, how, how you said it. And so my advice might be spend a little less time on the spreadsheets and the perfection of the modeling and spend more time on the relationship building and really, um, you know, because at the end of the day, it's the relationship that's going to carry the decision. Um, the, the analysis is good to a point, but at some point execution is going to take over and the analysis is going to be sort of dated. And so really spend time investing in relationships, you know, think about how what you're saying matters to people and uh, really spend maybe a little less time trying to get the numbers perfect and spend more time thinking about how you're saying things and how you're making people feel. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, we always like to ask our guests to reflect a little bit on the personal side of things, uh, whether they have a habit uh, that they've uh, adopted over time or uh, have a daily routine that they do. So maybe it's something that you do that has kept you on an even keel over time, given all the hours you dedicate to, uh, to, to the office and to the professional job that you have. Yeah. You know what? I really do. I, um, I've really taken a hands-on role to hiring our teams. Um, I meet everybody, everybody who works in finance, no matter what level they are, I meet them. If they're a temp, I meet them. Uh, if obviously if one of my direct reports, I meet them multiple times, but, but I interview every single person in our department, uh, because they're an extension of our department and team chemistry matters so much. Um, so, and I think there's nothing more, you know, a great hire returns exponential value to the company and vice versa, you know, a bad hire is just, it's just bad on so many dimensions. And so. You know, it doesn't matter what the level. And frankly, I even talk to a lot of the outside suppliers, auditors, et cetera, that it support our business as well um, and have points of view on sort of the teams that other, people's, other people bring to support our business. So I think, you know, the personalities are super important. I don't think there's anything we do that's more important than, you know, hiring a good team. I think it's snap, to be honest with you, in that, you know, two years time frame, even though we were taking the company public and doing all the audits and doing the S1s and everything, I probably spent a third of my time just hiring, just interviewing people, making sure that we had the right fit. I think we left a great team. I think we built a good team here at Allied Universal. I think we had a lot of good leaders to start with, too. 
But, you know, look, that's the legacy, I think, of a CFO. And I think it's the legacy of, of people in finance. Um, when I was at Snap, uh, the CEO of Snap told me that uh, finance was the best uh, organization in the company, which, you know, I, I really took that to heart and was really proud for the team for all that they had accomplished. So that, I would say, is probably what really is kind of a little bit of a nuance with me is that, uh, you know, even the temp who's going to be in for three days, I want to have a 15 minute conversation with. It's just it's really important. So the members of uh, the HR team would be accustomed to, to saying, uh, wait a minute, uh, let Drew know, will you please? That's a fair call. I probably should have also mentioned we've had some great HR partners, too. I mean, we, we had... You know, I, we had a handful of dedicated recruiters at Snap. I mean, they just killed themselves. They did a great job. I say we, you know, we started with a handful of people and 18 months later we had 100 and we probably interviewed 500 and they probably went through thousands of resumes to do it. I mean, it's, it really is a great partnership between HR and, and, and finance that, that puts a good team together. All right. Some, some great insight there for us. And we, we always like to ask if you have a book recommendation it uh, doesn't have to be a business book, uh, but uh, would you have a book recommendation for <laughs> I do. And it's actually not a business book. So we're on the same page. Um, you know, I enjoyed uh, a book called Influence, uh, The Psychology of Persuasion. And it's uh, by uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini. And, uh, you know, it's really just a it's a it's a it's a page flipper. Right. It's not it's not um, war and peace, but but it's common sense and it's some interesting anecdotes and some funny stories all sort of tied into human behavior and human experiences. And so it's an interesting read. But look, I think as a finance leader, you're just partnering across the organization to help drive change, right? Whether you want to improve cash flow, you want to convince the operators to go collect some receivables, you're trying to shape cross-functional thoughts, whatever it is, like that's about partnering and influence. And, and so I really think that's important. And we can bring, you know, in finance, we've got data and we've got facts and we can look at history and we can calculate returns and all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, I do think it's the relationship that really makes the difference on whether or not that decision gets made. And in, in a lot of cases, I think influence is important. I think we influence through facts, but I also think we can influence in other ways. And I think this book does a good job of helping you understand how you influence in other ways. All right. Well, I don't believe we've had it. At least uh, we haven't had it recently. So thank you for that. So it's good to have a, a, a book that we um, haven't featured before. So thank you. And we're up to our final question uh, where we ask you to look forward finally. And uh, for the next 12 months, we want to, we'd like to know what your priorities are uh, when it comes to being finance leader at Ally. So when I think about, you know, the finance function, I, generally, you know, use the construct of process people and systems. Um, we touched on a couple of these, but, but I think that, you know, from a process perspective, I think that, uh, you know, we're thinking about becoming public sometime in the future. Uh, and so I think that makes sense for a number of reasons when that's going to happen. I don't know, but I think there are a series of financial controls that we need uh, on both in finance and also IT. Um, our CEO talks a little bit about becoming public someday. Again, we haven't put a time frame around it, but I think we want to be in a place where we have the right control profile and, and we have the right forecasting process. We have the right ability to close our books confidently, accurately, and in a SOX consistent way. And so I think we're starting to work on that. I think the team has done a really good job on a number of controls. So I think that lift will be a lot easier than it was at Snap, quite frankly. But but I think overall, that's something we think about from a process perspective. Uh, I'd also like us to migrate potentially to a total shareholder value approach for managing enterprise value creation. Um, that's an interesting dynamic, uh, really makes sense for benchmarking and allows us to equate sort of a stock price to sort of business levers that you manage like cash flow and, um, and uh, EBIT growth. But overall, sort of an enterprise-wide way of thinking about financial management, like total shareholder returns, I think makes sense. And again, that's consistent with what we talked about earlier, managing our business for cash and profitability. I think that'll dovetail well. Uh, from a people perspective, I think we need to do, do a great job from sort of a business perspective. I think we need to build capabilities around audit and controls. Today, we don't have an internal audit function um, you know, again, we're a private company. You, you don't need that. I do think we're going to need that over time. 
I think, you know, getting the right financial controls, the right financial processes, vendor audits, number of things I think that a good internal audit function can do. I think we would uh, benefit from some of those capabilities here. And then from a systems perspective, I think we talked about accounts receivable. Today, it's a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat and Excel spreadsheets. I think in the medium term, that probably looks like more of a enterprise system to keep account data both, you know, qualitative in terms of, you know, feedback from the operators as well as, you know, kind of the numbers. I think in the medium term also is our business scales, particularly globally. Uh, we use WinTeam today as an ERP. Um, will WinTeam be a global solution for us? I think we'll have to see. Uh, but if our business becomes much bigger globally, uh, I think we'd have to potentially look at an ERP system. So anyway, that's how I think about the next kind of 12 to 24 months from a process people and systems perspective. Drew Valero, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.